0: Wasn't that a special time of moving and praying with grandparents? I had the opportunity to move back here to uh, Mrs. C, who at one point looked at me and said, I've known you long enough to be your grandma. And I said to her, that's good, because I don't have any grandmas left. I mean, my grandma weighed. My mom's mom is still alive, but so racked with dementia and in, in a stage four kidney failure, she doesn't remember who I am. It's one of the things I love about our church Do we have so many um, grandparents here. And then even if you're not grandma to the, the young person in front of you, even if you're not grandpa to the, uh, the 40-year-old man sitting behind you, you can still turn around and you can still be that. That's one of the best that. Pastor Greg and I were talking earlier this week and, and uh, we both concluded that's one of the best things that Beulah has to offer our community is an intergenerational group of believers who love each other as if we were biological family even though we're not. Praise God for that. You know what else I've appreciated this morning? Uh, I, I told Pastor Andrew when I got here and the praise team was practicing, it was like having the Beulah Youth Group Band leading worship today. It was so cool. Uh, I think it continues uh, to be cool to see teenagers here leading worship, so actively involved with that, using their gifts. I love that we can give people a place to explore their gifts. And, and Donna, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought you were a teenager too. You fit right in with the group today. So, uh, so thank you, Pastor Andrea. Thank you, teenagers, those who continue to be involved. And, and I just want to say that not all churches would go for this. Not all churches would uh, be thrilled about having so many teenagers involved leading worship and, and youth sponsors, and, and, uh, and we are. And I think that's important for us as a, as a church body. We will continue to be a place where people can dis, uh, discover and explore the gifts that God's given them, and so fantastic. Thank you, body. Thank you, church, for being that kind of place. Uh, I'm so glad we can honor grandparents today, and as we were doing that, uh, I was thinking about my Grandpa Wade. I've told you before about my Grandpa Wade. Um, I've, I've shared with you how he fought in World War II and some of the, the pain that came years later from some of the uh, uh, things he had to do as, uh, as part of being a soldier. I, I think I've probably told you about some of the grief that, that he dealt with when he had to... Uh, Barry's oldest daughter, my Aunt Judy, when she died of cancer. Uh, Maybe I've shared with you and some of you know he used to own the, uh, well, it's not a filling station anymore, but it was a filling station on the corner of Hively and Sterling. You can probably trace that in your mind as you uh, head into Elkhart on County Road 18, and it's now a a used car dealer, Um, but right there um, by the tracks and and, uh, and, and Dale Wade was known throughout Elkhart at the time as an honest man who would not only fill your tank, but he'd fix your car. And if you didn't have the money, that was going to be okay. I can remember running around the shop and helping grandpa in the shop and, and doing stuff. And I was thinking about the last conversation I had with my grandpa. This is the influence of grandparents. Grandparents. I remember it like it was yesterday, although it was 14 years ago. We were living in Morton, Illinois at the time, and I remember the evening. I was standing in front of our our picture window, which faced down K Street when my mom called and said, Grandpa wants to talk to you. This is probably the last time he'll be able to talk. He's not doing well. And it was just a short conversation with Grandpa as he... um, kind of groaned out, uh, you know, through his immense pain that he was dealing with, he uh, kind of groaned out his last words to me. And he said, love your family and take care of them. Work hard. I love you. And sure enough, those were the last words that I ever heard grandpa say. And I think the reason they stick with me so much is because that's who grandpa was. I grew up watching grandpa take care of his family, watching him love his children and his grandchildren. He worked long, hard hours. I would watch him trek across the yard between the, uh, the filling station and the house, so stooped over and hunched over because uh, his body was racked with pain. But he did it because... His family had needs and, and, uh, and even his, even his grandchildren needed him to do it. I knew from from the moment I'm old enough to remember, I knew that grandpa loved me because he would get home and sit in his recliner and, and if we were over, he would scoop me into his arms and uh, he always had a scruffy face. I think he shaved on Sundays for church and that was probably about it. He always had a scruffy face and he would pull me up and he would, he would rub his, his face against my cheek and then he'd say, I love you, Herbal derbal. Uh, if any of you ever say that, we're going to have words. It was grandpa's name for me. But he would do that over and over again as I giggled in glee. I knew that my grandpa loved me. I think his his words have stuck with me because I knew that this was the way he lived his life. That's the powerful thing about last words. When they match up with the way a person has lived their life, those words leave an impact. That's what we've been looking at through this series. We've said it in almost every sermon this series. The last words that Jesus said to us matched up with the way that Jesus lived. Matthew 20, 18, We uh, twenty. Excuse me. Matthew chapter twenty eight, verse eighteen through twenty. We call it the Great Commission. Jesus said, "As you are going, make disciples." This is what Jesus lived. And so his last words match what he lived and gave us our marching order. So we've been looking at what does it mean to be a disciple? If we're to be making disciples, what are we, what are we trying to develop in our own lives and the lives of people around them? So we've looked at uh, two characteristics. Today will be the third of disciples. First of all, uh, reach back. See if you can remember, we said that a disciple... Starts with a B. Anybody other than my wife, she should know it. She's heard all these sermons like four times. A disciple belongs. Thank you. A disciple belongs to Jesus. Pull out your notes if you need to, because I'm gonna ask you the next one in a moment, too. We said a disciple belongs to Jesus. A, a disciple is one who's following Jesus, who has said, Jesus is my leader. I'm going to allow him to call the shots. I belong to him, my life is no longer mine i 'll do what he wants. So we said the first mark of a disciple, this thing that we 're trying to be and we 're trying to help others be, is that they belong. We belong to Jesus. Secondly, we said, a disciple oh, come on, you can do this. There we go. I got, yeah, I heard I heard several people say it is becoming. Like Jesus, so if you remember, belongs and becomes, you're going to get it. A disciple is becoming like Jesus. So we we talked about some of the changes that Jesus wants to make when he calls us to be his disciple. He wants to um, he, he wants to work in our relationships. He he wants to work in, in like what what motivates us, what, what our behavior is, what our action is. He 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 wants to uh, change our concern for the lost. So a disciple belongs to Jesus. A disciple is becoming like Jesus. And today we're going to look at the third characteristic of a disciple, and that's that a disciple is being sent by Jesus. A disciple is being sent by Jesus. Now at the outset, I want to say this isn't sent like, um, hey, Sarah, could you go get me a glass of water while I preach, please? It's not like you go do that, I'm going to stay here and I'm good on water. That's, that's not what it's about. It's not that Jesus is sending us while he stands back and we go do it. This is more like, um, let's go do this. I have a new direction for you. I have a direction, a mission that you're not going. Let's go do this way. So when we say a disciple is being sent by Jesus, we're saying that we're going on mission. We're doing with Jesus what he is already doing. He's going with us. He's sending us in a new direction, and his presence is with us. So so we have a sense that Jesus had a mission when he came to earth. That's where we started this series in Matthew 4. Matthew 4.19, Jesus said, say it aloud with me if you remember it, come follow me and I will make you fishers of people or of men, depending on which version, that's fine. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus, in in that one sentence, he tells fishermen in in a language they can understand what his mission is. It's to fish for people. It's to find people. It's to catch people. It's to change the lives of people. Jesus repeats his mission different ways throughout the Gospels. Luke, in Luke chapter 5, now Luke we know for a living, didn't just write the part of the Bible, but he was a doctor, right? So Luke records Jesus's mission in, in words that a doctor would understand. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance, and so Jesus repeats his mission in words that different people can understand. And in Mark chapter ten, he's having a conversation with some people who want to be leaders. And so Jesus words his mission in a, in, a, in words and actions that all leaders should embody. Here's what he said: This is Mark ten forty five. For even the son of man did not come to be served. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Back to the book of Luke, uh, a little bit later, this is chapter 19. Jesus is having a conversation with a guy who was so desperate to see Jesus that he climbed a tree to get above the crowd. I mean, he was desperately seeking out Jesus. And Jesus explains his mission in words that he can understand. Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So as we look at Jesus's own description, albeit in different words and in different ways to different people, as Jesus described his mission, there's no doubt that Jesus understood that he had come because there were people who needed to know God. And he is the one who could make it happen. And so what we're going to do today as we read uh, the passage for today, it's in John 17, if you'd like to take a minute and find it. What we're going to see is that this mission that Jesus had to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many, to fish for men, that this, this mission he had, Jesus understood, had three parts. We're going to see what the three parts of that mission are, and then we're going to see what that means for us, because remember, a disciple is being sent by Jesus. We're we're going with Jesus on the mission that he has. So John 17 is where we're going to start. We're going to see the three parts. Um, John 17 is the last prayer that Jesus prayed with his disciples. Not his last prayer, mind you, because he prayed from the cross, and we'll see that in a few weeks. But it's the last time he prayed with his disciples. And so, um, you know, again, this is kind of like his his last words. He just spent some time teaching them. He's going to pray. They're going to cross the valley Uh, He's probably going to spend some more time in prayer. John doesn't say a lot about that, but ultimately he's arrested and hauled off to to be crucified. So this is the last opportunity he has in the book of John to speak with his disciples. And so we see that what he prays about here is what his life has been all about, this mission that he's on. So John 17, uh, we're going to read it in three parts uh, so that we can highlight each part of how Jesus understood his mission. I'm going to start at the beginning of John 17 and verse 1. If you have a pen, pull it out. I'm going to ask you to circle some things as we go. John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Now with your pen, circle this next word, please. Glorify. Circle that word glorify, and actually you're going to find it about five times in these first five verses, and then it's spread throughout the rest of the prayer. And so as you find it, you might circle it. Now, now here's the deal. When words are repeated time and time again, especially like five times in five verses, we have to start asking the question, why? What's the point being made? Why is that word being repeated so much? And so from the outset of this prayer, I think we need to understand that everything Jesus prays about here is for God's glory. Now we're looking at this through the, the lenses or the filter of Jesus' mission and our part in that, but we need to understand all of that goes back to God's glory. Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost and him inviting us to be part of that isn't about uh, growing our church. It's not about keeping our, our friends and loved ones from going to hell. Those, those things definitely would glorify God, but those aren't the point. The point is God being glorified. And we see Jesus say that, bring that up many times throughout. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So as we look at the first part of this prayer, we see the first part of Jesus's mission. And that is that Jesus came to bring us eternal life. Part of Jesus's mission was to give us eternal life. We see this in verse two. He says, for you granted me authority over all people that I might give eternal life to those you have given me. Jesus understood the first part of his mission was to give us eternal life. Now, if I don't miss my guess, in moments of utter honesty, you're probably like me and that you sometimes wish Jesus's mission was maybe something other than to give you eternal life. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm looking forward to eternal life in heaven, but there are times when I wish that Jesus's mission was about things like making my children well-behaved. Um... Um, making my children successful. Um, there's, there's days when I wish that Jesus' mission were more about making me comfortable or making it, um, uh, maybe you can relate to this one, making it easier to go into work uh, or any number of things that, that, that we sometimes wish that Jesus' mission were about This. But Jesus says, my mission or, or what God gave me uh, authority and, and, and glory to do was to bring eternal life. Jesus is pretty clear. This was his mission. And notice how he defines eternal life. Verse 3, he says, I mean, it couldn't be much more clear, right? Jesus said, now this is eternal life. My mission is to give them eternal life, and this is what I'm giving them, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life comes through knowing God. That's specifically what Jesus said, and John writes here, is, is eternal life is about knowing God. Now, John could have used different words in the original language. The the New Testament was written in Greek. John could have used different words about knowledge and said something like um, that, that they know about you, the one true God. But he didn't. He used a very specific word that best translates, says that they would know you, God. This particular Greek word that he used means to learn to know a person through direct personal experience requiring a continuity of relationship. I know that's a lot of words for to know, right? But this know means to know a person because you have a direct personal relationship with them and you have had for a season of time. Yesterday, I had the privilege of marrying a young couple. Um, uh, just a, a a beautiful wedding, a, a great young couple who need to know Jesus yet, but uh, but nonetheless, now they get to experience the joy of marriage. And after the ceremony and before the reception, because they asked me to, to be part of the reception, I was just waiting and killing time like we do like at weddings, right? Like while they get their pictures taken. And I was talking with the bride's grandparents. And, and, uh, and, and grandma says to me, um, that was a wonderful, it was a wonderful message during the wedding today. I've never heard anybody talk in a wedding about how difficult marriage can be. And, and I do that because... Well, it's hard at times. And I don't want, you know, they, they need some stars to be out of their eyes. Like, let's, this, is, this is real stuff. And she said, thank you. Marriage is hard at times. And then she leads it. It was so cute, this little old lady. She leads it and she says, and we should know we're going on 56 years this year. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so cool. Now, let me ask you a question. Both of these couples, the newlyweds and, 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 and grandparents, both of them are in the same relationship with each other, right? They're both married. One's been married for like 56 minutes and the other's going on 56 years. If I were to ask you, who knows each other best? How would you respond? Who would you say? Just go ahead. Let me hear your voices. <laughs> Anybody want to argue? <laughs> yeah, I think everybody said the grandparents they're both married. Both couples are married. They both now share the closest bond that a man and woman can share. But we would all say the grandparents, because 56 years of marriage has a way of helping you know a person. That's a lot of direct personal interaction with a person. You get to know things about them that you never thought you would. This is what Jesus is saying here. Eternal life is about knowing God, this kind of direct personal relationship where we know God over time and we come to know him in a way that we never would have thought possible. And he goes on and and he says, uh, the only way to know God is to know Jesus. The only way to experience, catch this eternal life, the only way to avoid eternal death is to know Jesus. It's to be in a relationship with Jesus. The gospel, the good news that God loves us is offered only in a relationship with Jesus. It's not a propositional truth that you agree to. You don't get to check on a survey, yes, I'm a Christian and you're good to go. Knowing God is about knowing Jesus. This is the only way to eternal life. You see, we get this, we get this all kinds of backwards and you've probably heard it and maybe even said it the same way that I've heard it. People assume that they'll go to heaven when they die because they've done, or they hope that they will have done by the time they die, more good works than bad works. I sat with a couple uh, uh, last week, or yeah, it was last week, and, and I asked them, I said, well, do you think you're Christians? They both told me they were baptized in the Catholic Church, and I said, well, what does that mean for you? Are you going to heaven? And their response, I kid you not, I'm not making this up, was, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. The young lady says to me, yeah, I, I think so. I, my life's pretty good. I do, I do good things. Well, well, this notion that I can go to heaven, that I can have eternal life because I do more good than bad is like a batch of cookies. Now, I hadn't planned on actually having cookies, but I got here and someone had left cookies for me, so we're gonna use these. It'd be like if I came to you, do you like chocolate chip cookies? Do you like chocolate chip cookies? Who likes them more? Seth. <laughs> It'd be like if I came to you and I said, I know you like chocolate chip cookies and I know you like them extra chocolatey. And so I tripled the chocolate chips. Here, would you like one? Go for it. I I know you like it. So I tripled the chocolate chips. Go ahead. Enjoy it. (laughs) Well, go ahead. I'll I'll do it with you. (laughs) And then I said to you, you know what? There's so much chocolate chips in here. You don't even need to worry about the eighth of a teaspoon of dog poop I mixed in. No big deal. Obviously, I didn't. I didn't even make these. Okay. I know. I know that's gross and revolting. Who would ever do that? Ugh. I mean, if I know you were even thinking about dog poop while you were making cookies that you gave me, I'm out. I don't want them. And yet this is the rationale people use. This is the rationale we use, even as Christians. Like, I got to do more good things than bad things. Then I'll get into heaven. God will accept me. No. This is eternal life. Know God and know Jesus. Eternal life isn't about what you do. You cannot do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. You could triple, quadruple all the good things and it don't matter. It only takes one bad thing. And if I don't miss my guess, you did it. Probably when you got angry that I went to Seth with the chocolate chip cookies instead of you. (laughs) They're up here if you want them afterwards. Jesus said, I've I've come to bring them eternal life and this is eternal life. No God and know Jesus. Be in an ongoing, direct, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father. And that's how we experience eternal life. Let's look at the second part of what Jesus understood his mission to be. I'm going to start in verse 6. I'm going to kind of bounce around, so just follow along. I'll holler out the verse numbers. We're Just for time, um, we're not going to read all of them. But John 17, starting in verse six, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Circle that word, that word world. Remember when we see a word a lot, we ought to ask why we see this word a ton, something like I think 18 times in this prayer, Jesus talks about the world. Well, why is that? Well, because as much as Jesus came to bring me eternal life and came to bring you eternal life, Jesus has a much bigger view. He came so that the world would know, the whole world would know, that God wants them to have eternal life. I revealed, uh, revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and I have obeyed your word. I'm going to jump down to verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they, the ones who have accepted and received eternal life, they're still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may choose to be one, excuse me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then down to verse 15. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. The second part of Jesus's mission fits with the first, but it's to make us holy, to make us holy holy. This is what he says in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is just a a fancy theological word that means to make someone holy, to set them apart for God's purposes. That's what holy is. That's what sanctify is. Notice how Jesus says we're sanctified. Did you see it in there? Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We're sanctified through Scripture. Now, there can be no doubt at all that God uses Scripture, the Bible, to grow us, to make us holy, to set us apart for Him. But it's not like the Bible is some kind of book of spells. It's not magical in the sense that if I were to do nothing all day, but tend to biological necessities and read aloud verses from the Bible, I would somehow become holy. That's not the way that it works. Just carrying a Bible with you, you don't get holiness by osmosis. Just reading a Bible doesn't do anything for you, okay? It comes when we do something with what we read, when we begin to live it out. And there's a lot of things that we Christians do or suggest that people should do with Scripture. We talk about memorizing Scripture. We borrow a phrase from, from the psalmist where he says, I have hidden your word in my heart. And so, uh, so we, we have programs in the church and we teach our children. Right now our children are in children's church and they're memorizing parts of Scripture. It's a beautiful thing. But hiding God's word in your heart, for some of us sometimes, can be a lot like the dog we've buried in the backyard. It's nice to know that it's there, but it ain't doing anyone a lick of good. You see, some of us are so proud that we've memorized scripture, but it never comes out in our behavior, never changes the way that we act. We're sanctified through scripture, but only insofar as we apply it to our lives and do what it says. We do devotions. Am I the only one who does daily or tries to at least do daily devotions? Apparently. I don't believe that for a minute. Okay. We do daily, we spend time reading God's word and and maybe we have a devotional book that has a nice little story that makes us laugh or cry. And then we we say a quick prayer and that's, that's good. We should do devotions. But doing daily devotions doesn't make us holy. Now, living a devoted life will make us holy. When we take what we're learning in God's Word and we live it out, that's holy living. But just reading a couple verses at the beginning or in the middle or at the end of your day, that doesn't make you holy. Scripture makes us holy insofar as we live it out, as we put into practice what we're learning Jesus said, part of my mission is to sanctify them, to make them holy. Those who have received eternal life, part of my mission now is to make them holy, to to continue to set that apart, set them apart for God. And part of our holiness is seen in our going. It's seen in our going. He said in verse 18, as you've sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We've said this and I've said this in every sermon in this series. Jesus' last words to his disciples were, as you are going, make disciples. Now, I know if you look it up in your version, it probably says, go and make disciples. But in the original Greek language, and you can check with Dr. Gerber, our resident Greek scholar on this, it is actually a participle. It says, as you are going, because Jesus' assumption is that all Christians everywhere through all time should understand that we're called to go. As soon as we receive eternal life, the next thing we're supposed to do is tell others about it. We're all called to be going to be going to our children, especially while they're under our roof and helping them to grow up in Christ, to be going into our neighborhoods, to be going into, into our workplace, to the cubicle, you know, across the walkway, to, uh, to be going into our coffee shops and our teams and our, and our groups and the other things that we're a part of. We are all called as Christians to be going. And Jesus said, I have sent them here into the world. I'm not here and I can't do it. So I'm sending them Jesus knew that he was on a mission to give us eternal life. He was on a mission to make us holy. And finally, he was on a mission to make us one. I'm going to start reading at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, when I read this passage and try my best to understand it, uh, this is what comes to mind. And I don't know if this is a good, if this is a theologically accurate. Um, visual, but this is what I think of. Jesus said, I have given those who have received eternal life unity, just like we have, Father, and then he says it's like this. I'm in them, and you're in me. Now, you probably have a set of bowls like this at home. Just don't make chocolate chip cookies with, yeah, you get it. Jesus said, this is unity. I'm in them, and you're in me. You know, this is how the Bible talks about our unity as followers of, Christ's, uh, followers of Christ. Paul says it like this in Ephesians, that when we are in Christ, we get unity. It comes with the set. Like it's part of the package. It's part of the deal. Uh, we have been given unity through Jesus Christ because God is is in us. God's in me, God's in you, and we're followers of Christ, and so we're one. Jesus understood that the third part of his mission was to give us unity. Now understand that this unity isn't about making us feel good. I mean, you you know people like I do who think that a church ought to be a place where I can go to feel good, because it's like my family, and I have these idealized notions of what a family ought to be, either because I had a great family growing up and, and I'd like to relive that, or because I had a horribly crummy family growing up and I want to experience what a what an idealized good family looks like. And so we project those notions of unity and family onto our church body. When it doesn't match up, we get mad. When it when we do get warm fuzzies, we feel good and we think our congregation is doing exactly what it needs to be doing. And I'm not talking about our congregation right now. Now, But we kind of have the sense that unity in the body of Christ is about how it makes me feel. But that's not necessarily how it works. You see, because unity only comes by God's indwelling, that ought to tell us that it's not about us. Our unity only comes when God lives in us. It only comes because we have the same Lord, the same Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we ought to know it's not about making us feel good. Rather, our unity is for the sake of the world. We have been given unity. Notice the last half of verse 23, so that the world will know who Jesus is. Here's the deal. We've all been made by God. We all bear his image, which means at least in part that we all crave the same thing. And that uh, one of those things that we crave is this notion that we have relation, real relationships with people where I can be myself, but I can know that you love me and you can know that I love you. It's, it's, it's kind of like this. I'm my own, but together we're one. It's, a, it's like... Um, that Greek philosopher, um, Aristotle. He said, uh, friendship is uh, two, I don't know, one spirit in two bodies. I mean, this is, this is kind of what we're made to crave. I want to, I want to be known and I want to know. I want to be loved by those that know me and I want to love those who I know, warts and all. And because we're all created to crave that kind of acceptance... When we see it somewhere, we're attracted to it. When I see a group of people and I know that there's some real weirdos in that group and I know that there's some real hard-headed, stubborn jerks in that group, but I watch that group and they love each other and they get along and they eat together and they laugh together and they correct each other. and uh, When I see that, count me in. I want to be part of that. And do you know how often people see that in the, in the world today? Like hardly anywhere. Jesus said, I've come to make them one so that they'll know that you sent me. Our oneness in Jesus is winsome for Jesus. When people see a body of believers loving and caring and accepting and correcting and and moving together as one without some kind of weird mind control, drink the Kool-Aid stuff, people go, I'm in. I don't know what it takes, but I want to be part of that. I want to be loved and accepted like that. I want to love and accept other people like that. Count me in. Jesus said, part of my mission is to make them one. Because in that oneness, others will be uh, drawn to eternal life, drawn to be made, being made holy. Our oneness in Jesus is winsome for Jesus. So these are the three parts, the three uh, phases, filters, whatever you want to call it, the three things that Jesus understand, understood about his mission. He came to give us eternal life, he came to make us holy, and he came to make us one. That's great, But what does that mean for us? Because after all, the whole point of this is that a disciple is being sent by Jesus. Jesus is saying, let's go do this mission together. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three phrases um, that are not necessarily go now and do this, but hopefully they'll get you thinking about what are you doing in regards to going on mission with Jesus. Phrase number one, my goal is to get people to Jesus not just to church. My goal is to get people to Jesus, not just to, ter- to church. So many months ago, like last year, I was meeting with a young couple who more than anything, I wanted to, to help them to encounter Jesus. They, like a lot of people in our culture, thought they were Christians because they're not Buddhists, they're not Jews, they're not Hindus, they're not atheists, so they must be Christians. Um, but, you know, you can tell in conversation if someone has really given their heart to Christ. And my desire for this young couple was, I just want them to meet Jesus. And so I did what we do. I invited them to church. And would you believe that they came to this church? And they would sit in the back at the tables. And, and they came once. And I thought, wow, that's, that's fantastic. I thought, well, they're going to look around. They're going to see a lot of bald heads and a lot of gray hair. And they're going to say, well, this isn't really our crowd. But they didn't. They came back. And they came back, and they came back, and for months, they kept coming back. And I'd continue to meet with them. And I continue to realize that they weren't getting any closer to Jesus. And I started to realize that inviting the church was a good thing, but it wasn't the thing. I didn't need just to get them to church. I needed to get them to Jesus. This is what I love about Greg Mercer. And I'm sorry to put Greg on the spot. I didn't ask for permission to do this. But if you've ever talked with, is he here today? I know he is. Is he still here? He's in the back. Greg, Yeah, so Greg Mercer, just stand up. I won't do this to anyone else, but I'll do it to him. I'll pay for it later. Um, Greg Mercer, I don't know how many of you know, this guy works out like, reg- like faithfully, like always goes to the gym. And here's what I love about Greg. Greg goes to the gym, not just to, you know, become buff and, and, and ripped abs and all that. Greg goes to the gym because there's people there. And there's people there who don't know Jesus. And so Greg will strike up a relationship with a person, and I don't know, about 3.2 seconds into that relationship, that conversation, he'll look at the person when they stop to take a breath, and he'll say, hey, tell me what you know about Jesus. I mean, like he just met them on the ellipticals. and He's like, tell me what you know about Jesus. This is beautiful. You, know, you can say to somebody, hey, where do you go to church? And they can tell you who knows what. I mean, There's all kinds of churches around here. They could pull a name out of a hat because you don't go there. You're not going to know if they do. I mean, people tell you all kinds of different things when you say, what church do you go to? But when you look at someone and say, what do you think about Jesus? You're going to find out real quick if they know Jesus or not. The goal isn't to get people to church. It's to get people to Jesus. Now, don't stop inviting people to church. I'm not saying that. I mean, get them to church. It's a great way to open further conversations. They'll hear the gospel there. Maybe they'll get a free chocolate chip cookie. Who knows? Invite people to church by all means, but don't assume that's the end. And the other thing I would say about that real quick before I move on to the last two and we get out of here is this. As you look around our church now and before church and after church, if you see someone you don't know, why don't you go to them and get to know them? Because not everybody here knows Jesus. That's not an indictment, but if we're doing our job, that's the way it ought to be. There ought to be people here who don't know Jesus. And if you will just walk across the room, across the aisle, across the lobby, and meet someone you don't know, you could have the opportunity to be part of them taking their next steps towards Jesus. I probably don't need to say that, but we get in, I get in this mode. I assume if you're here, you must be here to hear some halfway decent preaching because you're a Christian. No! Not everyone who goes to church is a Christian. Just like not everyone who goes to a hospital is sick and not everyone at a funeral home is dead. Physical location does not equal spiritual salvation. So if you see someone you don't know, go up, talk to them, build a relationship with them. The goal is to get people to Jesus, not just to church. Getting them here is a prelude to what God is doing in their life. We get to help them take the next steps. Number two, if I'm not going, I'm not holy. Ooh. if I'm not going, I'm not holy. That's a pretty big hurdle. Here's what I want to say. To be holy, we said earlier, means to obey Scripture. Not just to read it, not just to go to Bible studies, not just to go to a Wednesday night class or a Sunday school or a small group. To be holy means to obey Scripture. And beloved if I'm not going to people who don't know Jesus so that they can meet Jesus, I am ignoring large parts of scripture, which means I'm not obeying God's word. And so if I'm not going to others around me who don't know Christ, I'm not set apart for God. There was a a musician in the early 80s His name was Keith Green. He used to tell people this at his concerts You don't need a special call from God to go tell people about Jesus. You are already called. In fact, if you stay home, you'd better be able to say to God, I know that you called me to stay home. I know it for sure. If you're a Christian, you're called to go. And if you don't go, if I'm not going, if you're not going, We're not holy. Number three, I, letter I may be the middle letter in unity, but God must be at the center of our unity. I may be the middle letter in unity. I know that's a little corny, but just bear with me. But God must be at the center of our unity. Listen, putting putting God at the center of our unity, here's, here's a few practical things that it means. Just take your temperature real quick. It means that my comfort isn't the most important. I must do what God has called me to do even if it looks difficult. it means that we deal with issues that arise according to god 's wisdom as expressed in scripture not according to man's wisdom, not according to what works in the business world, not according to what's expedient and easy and is going to cause the least amount of pain we deal with issues according to God's word having God at the center of our unity means that my preferences my desires, my spouse, my children are not the most important thing when it comes to me making decisions. It means that we are the most important thing, that I, that I make decisions for the body so that Christ could be formed in me and in my family and in our body. Sometimes it means that, that we endure difficult things for the, for the sake of the body. Sometimes it means that we consider the needs of the whole as greater than my needs. We could go on and on with what this could mean, but here's the key if I'm at the center, it's not unity. If my first question is, what does this do for me? What is this going to cost me? I'm not concerned about unity. I'm concerned about me or my family or my children. The unity that God has called us to is most concerned about what God is up to and what God wants to do, and what God has called us to do, and what what God wants to accomplish. God has got to be at the center, and we know that he is when we're obeying his directions, and, and when his concerns are most important to us. So Jesus was crystal clear about his mission. He came to give eternal life. He came to make us holy, and he came to make us one. And we participate, we go in mission with Jesus. when we're most concerned about getting people to Jesus. When we're doing our part, the way that God has wired us and made us to go to those who don't know Jesus. And when we're working together to maintain the unity that we've been given in the spirit because Christ is in us, because God is in us. beloved, we can all go on mission with Jesus. You don't have to be a Greg Mercer and ask people point blank, what do you know about Jesus? I mean, that's good if God's wired you like he's wired Greg. We can all be on mission with Jesus. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And thank you that you seek to continue to form us and to make us holy through your word, through your indwelling spirit. Father, I ask that you would continue to work in me. Even as I I preach these these final points today, I'm, uh, I'm convicted because I stood across the counter from Tyler this week and I didn't say a blessed thing about you. I chickened out. So God, I pray that, that you would forgive me, that you would uh, continue to send me, that I would be faithful, that I would do what you've called me to do. And Father, I would pray the same for my brothers and sisters here. Would you help us to go to people who don't know you, to, uh, to try to get them to you through whatever means uh, are at our disposal, that you, or whatever doors you open. And would you help us, Father, to maintain the unity of the spirit to remember that you've given us unity because you dwell in us and then help us to guard that and protect that and live into that in a way that shows others uh, a love and acceptance, a unity they don't experience anywhere else. But Father, we can't do that. I can't do that without your spirit. And so Father, again, today I ask as you send us out today into our neighborhoods and our homes and our workplaces... Would you please help us to position ourselves so that we can be filled by your spirit so that we know that you go with us, giving us the words to say, giving us the strength to do what we need to do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.